the point of these meetings is to make decisions. And I would argue that a reasonable definition of a leader or of leadership in general is a person who is trusted with making strategic decisions. And so for me, when I think about who should be in the room, it would be the smallest number of people necessary to make that decision. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the growing team here at Levels. We're a venture-funded startup backed by more than a thousand of our community members and some of the best VCs in the game, including Andreessen Horowitz. On this podcast, we talk about everything we do. We share the learnings about our culture and what we're building along the way. This is Inside the Company. What exactly does it mean to be a leader? Does a title make someone a leader? Why do some people think that titles imply leadership? Well, this isn't the case and it shouldn't be the case. Leadership involves the qualities that anyone exhibits on a team. It could be a professional team, a company, or it could be a sports team. And if you're into hockey, do you need a C on your jersey to be the captain of the team in order to lead? Well, not necessarily. Everyone plays different roles and contributes. The person known as the locker room guy, that being the guy or the girl, who's very much the team advocate, the one that pumps people up, the person that instills confidence, the person that motivates other team members by their effort both on and off the ice. Well, enough with hockey, let's get back into leadership. So Josh Clementi, founder of Levels, and Sam Korkos, co-founder and CEO of Levels, the two of them sat down and they discussed this idea of leadership. Why is there more of a focus in society with the balance between influence and power when it comes to leadership? A title might imply power, but a leader acts with influence to get respect and to execute across a company or a team. Could a DRI, that being a directly responsible individual, be thought of as a leader? Absolutely. There's no doubt in anyone's mind that a leader is somebody that acts with character. A leader is somebody that models the behaviors that any team wants to exhibit in order to win. And a great team? Well, it's just made up of a group of leaders. Anyway, no need to wait. Here's Sam and Josh. I don't know why it rubs me the wrong way the way that we use terminology around leadership, people who are in leadership or not. Leadership is really important. There is such a thing as people who are leaders. However, it feels weird to me that we or other companies draw such a stark distinction between like that person is in leadership or not. We really expect everyone to be a leader, at least to some degree. So it's kind of open it with that. And I, I would, I would give another similar example of maybe why the language matters. I think it might've been United airlines or Delta airlines. One of these airlines, they created a cabin somewhere between business class and economy. It was called economy comfort, which of course implied <laughs> that economy was uncomfortable. <laughs> right. And they got a lot of flack for it. I think they ended up rebranding it to something else. But that's kind of how I feel with the way that we use this label is, oh, they're not in leadership. It's not accurate. And it creates this false dichotomy. So I just kind of want to open that up and see where it goes. I think you and I are going to agree on this almost completely. Um, it, it really has always bothered me. Anytime that I've heard that or heard, you know, pontificating about how to 
foster a, le- a group of leaders or something as if you like only want to slice off a subset and turn them into leaders. Probably the way, maybe the easiest way to go on this is like, what we want is to have people who show leadership as opposed to being labeled as in leadership, as if it's a club. Um, and so, you know, right now that's like leadership got together or the leadership group is going to do this or that. And like, exactly as you're saying, everyone else is by default excluded from that category. Thus, they are not leaders. And it's, it creates this requirement that you are bestowed with leadership. It's like, now you have been given the title of leader and you may now show leadership. And uh, I just think it's totally backwards. So ideally, yeah, you know, ideally everyone is showing leadership all the time. And in that case, there are leaders, but everyone's showing leadership. And maybe that's an area that we can double click on is like, what's the difference between a leader and somebody showing leadership? Yeah, because it's also interesting when it comes to, when it comes to somebody who is a leader, I think where where people immediately jump to would be something like a management role where they direct people and their time and attention. But I also see leadership in IC roles where people, they make important decisions that affect other people. And that is a leadership role in its own very distinct way. It's not one around personnel development. It's one around technical decision-making. And that's something that you expect from leaders as well. So, yeah, I think we're on the right track where the root of the discomfort is that, honestly, for, for both of us, I'm sure we've been on the other side of that, that label of leadership and the frustration that comes with, I think, feeling a, a little bit disempowered to, to show what you think is important to show about how to operate inside a company and you know it strips away a sense of capacity i feel like when you're explicitly told that you're not a leader that might be one big problem is that it certainly doesn't make people feel like they have the respect of the group that is being called leadership i feel like you know and then uh you know maybe the easiest place to go from here i I agree that it's typically it's typically an extra label for managers I, i suppose or executives the term is not very well defined but let's just say it's those with direct reports and as you're saying and then and then it's like yeah what about the people who are showing exceptional technical leadership and who everyone looks to when they're trying to solve difficult problems is that not leadership i think really what it comes down to is like leadership the term can be defined most of what i would say about that is like being in in service to the company removing ego, um, acting graciously and assuming best intent and and typically like practicing sort of extreme ownership over your work and honestly, everything that happens at the company, like taking a position of the output of this group is my own and vice versa and helping other people absorb that sort of perspective is what I would look at as defining leadership. Yeah, you brought up a good point that it can feel like if you're not using the finger quotes in the leadership group that you don't have the respect of your peers. That's definitely, I don't know if that's something that is universal, but it's definitely something that I've seen. And I guess I, I don't relate to it as much personally 
maybe it's just because my work history has been so unusual, but I prefer not to be in meetings <laughs> if like, if I can avoid it. I, as you've probably noticed to the greatest extent possible, I always say like, Hey, can you guys just send me the recording so that I don't have to be there? <laughs> Unless I can add value to a meeting, I don't want to be in it. And so maybe you would have a better perspective on why there are so few meetings that can be productive with 8, 10, 15, 20 people in it. And yet everyone wants to be in that meeting for some reason. And I, I honestly do not relate to that at all. As soon as there are more than four or five people in a meeting, I immediately want to leave and have them just send me the recording and do something more productive with my time. Yeah, there's there's a bit of a an exclusivity element, I think, at play there. There's probably two two concepts here where specifically leadership is a difficult term, or it's like I think an unfortunate term to be used for the the group that is in charge of maybe making strategic decisions at the company level because it excludes everyone else and makes them it sort of like we said implicitly makes them non-leaders. But then then you factor in you know what are the what are the practical elements that are associated with being in that leadership group that people tend to want access to. And I think it's the, it's access to the highest level of, of the company. So CEO, you know, level executive access, insight, knowledge, being the first to know things. I mean, these are, these are some of the, the elements that I think become desirable and tend to drive, and also that it's their scarcity inside the the organization like you're not going to like you're saying you're not going to have more than a handful of people it gets unwieldy any, any larger than that and so there's a, a scarcity element so then when you take all of that bundle of things which some people want and other people couldn't care less about mostly we in society think that everyone wants to become an executive class like manager or something um so maybe we just use that to pull this thread but people look at it as you get this set of responsibilities and benefits if you're in the quote unquote leadership group and it becomes really exciting and something that people people want it's a kind of breaks down into a binary event where until I am that you know I, my goal and aspiration is to be in the leadership group as opposed to I think orienting around what does the company need and what are those sort of strategic opportunities that I can lend my skill set to, right? So at levels, what we've tried to do is really smooth out the titling structure and focus on incentive through responsibility as opposed to through title. And this is one area where I feel like we haven't completely solved it, which is that we still have this implicit title of leadership, even though um, really what matters is where in the DRI matrix or what, what sort of problems are you solving within the DRI matrix? What decisions are you making? I wonder, like as a, as a practical matter, so I'll just speak for myself, which is when I, I prefer meetings that are the smallest number of people possible to come to a conclusion on a decision. There is never a situation when, when somebody says that bringing so-and-so in will be valuable. There's never a situation where somebody is not valuable. If somebody were to say, we should bring in Zach because he, he represents legal and he should be in this conversation. 
there's never a time when the answer is like, no, he would have nothing to contribute because he will always have something to contribute. But you do that for 30 people and then you're just back where you started, which is great. Now we need to do a meeting <laughs> with three people <laughs> so that we can make a decision and it just comes full circle. And so I think there, there's definitely, it's, I think it is necessarily true that because of the number of people that is useful to make a decision is effectively zero sum. You can imagine it's like three people. It could be as high as eight people. Like Amazon has the, the two pizza team rule for this reason. There, there is an upper bound on the number of people that can contribute to something. Not, like the, these salon dinners that I host, I've tried hosting them with 15, 20 people, and it's a disaster. The answer is you just split it into two different groups. You yeah. can invite all the people, but the, the conversation cannot be useful with that many people. So I, I wonder if, because this is something that I, I, we have a memo on this somewhere else around having more functional decision-making groups where it's not about having one like leadership group that makes decisions. It's about having the right people in the room to make relevant decisions. And I don't know in practice if that works, but that seems like something that at least on paper would make a lot more sense. We probably have more than one topic to, to dig into here, which is, first of all, what does leadership mean and what do we want it to mean here? And then also, how, how is decision making, well, how should we structure decision making to be most effective and, and minimize wasted time? I feel like there there are a bunch of ways to go after this uh, on the decision-making side. I'm curious about in your experience with salon dinners and that sort of thing, like why it breaks down. Is it, is it that everyone wants to have equal airtime? Is it that there's like a distribution of familiarity with the topic and, and just people are on the tails. And so the people that know the most end up just taking the mic and the people that know the least can't contribute at all. How does it sort of break down? Yeah. Well, we'll touch on the, the specific like interpersonal dynamics at a salon dinner, it, the optimal number of people is probably six to eight. They end up usually being closer to 10 to 12. The one that I'm hosting tonight is 12 people. And it's going to be a little bit, it's going to be a little bit too many. It's probably, I'm going to have to really be a more aggressive moderator to make sure that people, uh, airtime is not even Airtime is not quite the right word because that has, that has some egocentricity to it in, in terms of how it's often used. It's more like people are not here to listen to a podcast. They're here to transform and explore ideas. And if, you, if everyone comes in with five ideas that they want to explore and there's only time to explore 30 ideas in total, if you have too many people, like the time is finite. And so some people are just not going to be able to really participate at all. And they're really just listening to what other people think are interesting. And so the giving the space for people to express their ideas and transform them is really, is really one of the major factors. And so if you, if you have small groups, I think the best salon dinners I've ever done were the smallest ones, six to eight people, because you just, you can go so much deeper on single ideas before you have to change topics into something else that somebody finds interesting. Uh, and so you can just go much deeper on each topic. Um, it also feels less repetitive because many times when you have these larger groups, 
people have different levels of context and you end up just repeating yourself over and over and over again because somebody came into the conversation late or they weren't paying attention or there's just so much context to ramp up on that they missed something. And then you have to repeat a thing that you just spent the last hour explaining to nine other people to one person. This is obviously not salon dinner specific, but there's just there's so much more context. And if you can, if you have a smaller group, like a, a specific recent salon dinner that we hosted, uh, it was on something that was more philosophical. And it was a larger group. And about half of the people had read several books on philosophy related to this topic and wanted to go super deep. And half of the group was very new to this, this framing of thinking and had not read any of the books. And so we spent most of the time really just going over the basics of philosophy. And the people who I thought were the most interesting, who I wanted to hear from, really couldn't participate because we were just explaining the basics of epistemology. Mm -hmm. And so like, just ramping up to get to the point where we could even have interesting conversation was seriously compromised. And it's not like I didn't like the other people or want them to be there. It's just if, if I was to do it again, I would have just done it with a much smaller group who was already at the same level of preparation. Yeah, it's really interesting. It, it's, it sounds like the goal is to create, I mean, specific to salons, but I think we can extrapolate from there, create an environment where, you know, the information density of the communication, the conversation is highest. And right. to get there when you have like sort of a broad distribution of people is going to be super dif difficult because not everyone has the same context, et cetera. And I think that, that definitely maps onto a company where you have function level leadership. Let's just continue using the term because we haven't, we haven't rebranded yet. Um, function owners and they have the most context for what's going on inside their, their sort of vertical. And then in some cases, it's important for people to communicate across those functions to make decisions, decide what's the best path forward. Um, sometimes just kind of explain thinking and, and bounce ideas off each other. And usually that will only be like a small group. And that's definitely going to be the highest information density. Like it's, it's not useful for it's, if, a, if a decision affects three, you know, functions most aggressively, it's not useful for people outside of that to be right in the mix, trying to have all the context and trying to contribute to the, to the problem solving. But it, it may be useful. And this is something I, I want to put out there. It may be useful to be audience to that process. And this is where right. I, I certainly benefit. And it's not that I benefit, this is the interesting thing about Looms, right? Where if you record that conversation and distribute it, I personally, and I have no idea where this comes from, get less value from those than if I were to just sit quietly and listen to the conversation happening in real time. Yeah, the, so yeah, going, going back to the, the original concept is I would say, what I think is most effective is the smallest possible group of people who can represent the ideas to make a decision. That I think is what, in like the, the idealistic form of what this means on how you make decisions. Because ultimately the point of these meetings is to make decisions. And I would argue that a, a reasonable definition of a leader or of leadership in general is a person who is trusted with making strategic decisions. I think that might be a reasonable, consistent definition. And so for me, when I think about who should be in the room, it would be the smallest number of people necessary to make that decision. 
And it might be two people, it might be four people, but this it's not add anyone to the meeting who can add value to the meeting because that would be everyone. And that's not, that's not the goal. So giving visibility to people might, I think to some degree would make them feel more included in the process. It might also, there, there have been many times like as recently as today, I was watching one of the sync meetings for engineering or for product. And there was a decision that was made or something that was proposed that I thought should be done differently. And 80, 90% of the time I watch those, I have nothing to contribute and I'm glad I don't have to be there. But every once in a while I see something and I actually do have something to contribute. And then I do it after the fact. And that saves me a lot of time and it saves them a lot of time. So there, there's definitely something to that around providing visibility, figuring out what the smallest possible group is, and then figuring out what, like, who would be the next circle of people in order to give visibility into. You, you raised one topic there, which was defining a leader as distinct from leadership, but a, a leader is someone who can hold strategic decision-making authority and be trusted to, to make the right calls, assuming that they display all the elements of leadership as well. Yeah. It might be worth parsing out whether it means they have the formal authority to do so or whether there's somebody that is trusted with it. Because ultimately, in a company, companies are not a democracy. And all, all decisions at every level of the company ultimately stem from the decisions of the CEO. This is just definitionally how companies operate. And so the CEO trusts some set of people to make strategic decisions without their involvement. And then those people trust other people to make certain decisions without their involvement. Each level removed, the decisions are less and less strategic just in general. Um, so I don't know if there's a bright line between when a decision is no longer considered strategic or not. There are people who I would consider leaders that are maybe doing, they, they are acting in a capacity where they, they don't have formal authority to make certain strategic decisions because they're functioning in a certain way. And when I consider that person no longer a leader, I mean, maybe they're not functioning, they're not leading people in a functional way. I guess it's a, it's a question of is, is leadership more of a personal characteristic or is it a role within the company? Yeah, I mean, my feeling through this conversation is that we have to extricate leadership from, let's say, function ownership or function responsibility or something like that, which is, I think, what we're trying to describe. So we, if we want everyone to display leadership, then by default, I think just based on the way that language is, yeah. is going to expand, it's going to be, they are leaders. Um, so as long as we try to create like some juxtaposition there, we're going to struggle. But I agree that what we want is we want to minimize the number of people who are in, involved in making a decision, but I don't think we want to minimize the visibility into that process, mostly because a company is also just kind of fabric. It's everything's interconnected. There is no decision that can be made by three people that doesn't impact 
really everyone at the company to some degree. So three people making the decision is correct because they're going to have, or, or some number of people that is small, is going to be the number that have the most context. But what I find really valuable about seeing that process happen is a very important part of context development. It's, it's learning how we arrived there as opposed to being told that something has happened, which is going to impact right. your group. That's the difficulty that people run into when they don't have access to the, the information, essentially as it's developing. And we can see this all the time. You know, when we put people in the same room to discuss a topic that was contentious four hours ago, it suddenly becomes clear when you walk through that in real time with people, not necessarily because they are the ones that made the decision, but because they're seeing the decision happen. And that context is developing. There's that pyramid of information flow or, or maybe strategic weightiness of decisions where, you know, at the, at the bottom rung of the company, most decisions being made should be, you know, are, are going to be relatively low on the strategic index. But as you move up, you know, up the company, decisions are getting more and more strategic in that they are impacting more of the company's future. And really what I'm, what I'm starting to think is that maybe the, the goal of a, like a group of owners or whatever we want to call the people who are responsible for strategic decisions is that the CEO has to have all the context and the others who have a similar degree of strategic ownership have to have context. And so the CEO has to have like really be bought into the decision. But the, the other people who are in the company who have to share that context, I think need to develop it in a similar way. Like they have to see the process happening if, if there's going to be mutual trust and they're not going to have a bunch of pushback, like, oh, this is causing significant disruption. Why was this decision made? And um, I think what's, what's important is to filter down the decisions that are being made in a, in a format that includes you know, more than the decision makers. And it should be designed to be bottom-up communication, meaning I think the people who are um, communicating into that group, their objective is to get the CEO alignment because that's the most important thing is CEO alignment on, a, on an important decision. And then the others that are in that forum, I think are just developing that context by, by seeing that process happen, not necessarily involved in the decision-making. And this, I think, allows the, the sort of CEO to function owner dynamic to play out where really you could be more prescriptive about who is doing that communicating, like what information you need in order to develop the context you need to feel comfortable with the decision, et cetera. And other people are there kind of to observe and collect that information. And then we've talked about this before, but it's, it's not necessary that we have just like some small handful of people who are the only ones that would ever in a meeting like that or in a discussion like that. There are people at this company who have a very high degree of familiarity or ownership over certain contacts at the company who, yeah, they are, they are leaders in that subset of the decision-making and pulling them in as necessary to develop context should be a thing that we do. And instead of having like this, oh no, you're like, you haven't been selected by the group, therefore you, you can't be involved in this sort of decision-making context building exercise. If you remember, we, we have a memo on principles of decision-making uh, from a while back. And one of the things that was in it is how it's reasonable for people to want to know how decisions were made. And I think giving visibility is really important. I think there, there might be, this is me speculating somewhat, 
there might just be some legacy, like cultural legacy. It has never been the case prior to right now that these meetings were recorded and can be distributed in the form of content. So there might just be some cultural legacy where people feel like they have to be in the meeting because that's the only way to get that information. That might be a possibility. Like there are, there are many of these meetings and you and I have talked about this in the past where I've said to you, Josh, I don't think you need to be there sync, but you did. And you really just sat quietly and listened. And it would have made no difference if you watched it three hours later at 2x while you were going on a walk. But my speculation is that you felt like it was important for you to be there for some reason. Yeah, that, that goes back to what I was, I was saying earlier, which is that I genuinely get something different out of the live conversation. Looms have never, there's an uncanny valley of information exchange where like Loom is an okay representation, but I'm picking up different signals from people when it's happening real time. And I, I don't really know what's different about it, but I come away from a Loom feeling like, okay, I just listened to a recording. I come away from a decision-making conversation feeling like I understand that person's perspective. And I don't have much more explanation than that. It's something that maybe it's like largely, maybe the actual difference in terms of how, how well I am positioned to, to like go about my, my job is not very large, but my psychological sense about it is very different. And to add one more piece on that, mm -hmm. like, and it is even further, like the same thing sort of extrapolates again from in person. So if I was there live in a room with people, I will come away even more, I think, confident that I understand the full scope of the circumstances around that decision, whatever it might be. So, you know, we saw this last week when we were on site, we had some conversations that for sure I could have just like observed people on a Loom call. But that would have been an order of magnitude different in terms of how I felt about, you know, the synergy among people and like how good they're actually feeling. You know, did they hang up that call and walk away and slam their fist on the table or, you know, you know what I mean? So seeing the whole thing happen in real time allows me to develop a really good picture of what went into that conversation and came out of it. Hmm. Interesting. There's definitely a difference between in-person and virtual for me. There's no question. I, I don't feel as much of a difference live versus async when it comes to virtual like there there have been many conversations or meetings where while the meeting was going on i found myself looking for the 2x button and like i'm in the meeting live and I'm like how can i make this go faster it's like oh no this is happening right now i just need to i just need to wait <laughs> how much of that do you think is is learned behavior versus like actually better? I don't know. I think it might also be related to the role. Like we, we were doing those leads calls and I, I mentioned how at the end of them every week, I said it was a complete waste of time for me. And this is in the previous incarnation of them. And the reason was it was basically everyone filling everyone else in on context that I already had. And so like I'm already, the decision's already been made and I'm just there kind of as an observer and not even an observer. The reason why I was told I had to be there was because it was important for like aesthetics that the CEO was in the room and taking it seriously. And that was just not going to work for me, <laughs> which is why we stopped doing them. Mm -hmm. um, 
or at least we've significantly changed the format into something else. Um, so I like to come to decisions quickly. And if the goal is like filling in context for people who don't have it, me being there is not the best use of my time because I already have the context. And so if, if filling everyone else in on context is what's needed, then that's, I'm usually one step ahead of that because that's the nature of my role. So I don't know if that counts as learned behavior, but it's definitely different. Well, I'm curious how long that is going to be, be able to stay the case where, where you have the context ahead of everyone else, like at some, at some scale, you'll be playing catch up essentially all the time to make sure that, that things are on track and people will be, you know, always trying to communicate information to you. So yeah, I'm curious about that, you know, how, how sustainable the current circumstances are. And then I think you're probably right that catching everyone up on context is not the best use of your time may not, maybe it's the best use of their time. I'm not entirely sure. Like if it is actually an information dense meeting where, you know, people who are focused on their function kind of all through the week are just catching up on what's happening in another function, like an hour there might actually be the best version instead of watching, even at 2x, watching five other functions update, you know, decision-making videos at 2x. Like you're still, you're still at a net loss there. So I think there is a version where context information exchange, et cetera, is done live among people who don't have that context, then maybe you don't have to be there. But then there is a version where there's decisions that have to be made that are going to impact the company in a significant way that observing that decision-making process could be really valuable for, for people. And, and maybe, it's, maybe it's that having access to, to be able to raise your hand and be like, hey, that thing you just said um, is actually not correct. Or it's going to, like, it has this underlying problem that is going to, like, really affect me and my group the most. And I just want to be able to surface that and being able to do that in real time as opposed to in serial where like later on that week you you watch the video and then you're like oh man I got to follow up on this and then you do and then there's another call that gets scheduled you know it just creates sort of a cascading frustration instead of just being there in the moment being able to to interject and i think definitionally the person who should be in this sort of meeting should be one who's trusted not to like make this an ego trip and try to block or try to you know, just be present and be involved in the conversation because they, they want to feel good about themselves. It should be very focused on minimizing the amount of unnecessary disruption to the decision process. Interesting. Well, we went on a bit of a tangent there. I forgot that we were talking about leadership. <laughs> Circling back to that primary conversation about language and leadership, the tangent was at least somewhat related because it has to do with like, who's in the quote-unquote leadership meeting, and what does that even mean? I think that's how we ended up on this. Well, let's, let's give a hypothetical, and we'll use you as an example. Let's say there is an important decision that affects, let's say, let's say the people that I want in the room for that conversation are Moz, Tom, and Ben. This is like a product and growth-related function. And maybe even just Tom and Moz would be the minimum number of people needed to have that conversation effectively. Now, one could easily justify uh, adding you to that or Casey to that or Karen or any number of other people who could add a lot of value to that conversation. Certainly Lauren would add a lot of value to that conversation. But now we're already at eight people. And I wasn't even with thinking about it at all. 
But what I want is the minimum number of people necessary, not the maximum number of people who might be able to contribute or might need context. So maybe if you can come up with how we solve your problem without creating new problems for me, <laughs> then we'll be in a good place. Maybe what it comes down to is that we're talking past each other about what is important for that context to exist. So there are examples of topics that are either really complex, messy, and currently like on the mental back burner for people who are in charge of strategic decisions. And they, they know that nobody has the ball um, and somebody has to take the ball or we have to decide not to do it or, you know, so on and so forth. Or there's a topic that's already underway that is like super complex and messy and is going to disrupt things. Those are tricky problems and, and or escalated discussions that affect basically everyone at the, at the like high level. I don't you know, keep saying the leadership level, but at the high level of the company and they likely can contribute to it. And there's just this, this small subset of problems that have oversized impact on people and or decisions that have already been made that have oversized impact on people. And I think it's a judgment call what is important for people to share. It's never going to be perfect, but there is a value to, and I, I, I know that we're seeing this right now with the lead sync. Um, there is a value to having those people in a discussion together, observing how we're mulling over the same problems, um, how people are prioritizing, what decisions are being made that, that impact others. There is a value there that we need to preserve and, and probably double down on. But it's certainly, I'm, I'm not advocating for every person who could provide a perspective on a topic to be in a meeting. I think that's a, probably a mischaracterization of what I've been trying to say. It's, it's like, I, I don't think it's useful for Alan to be in a meeting between Tom and, and you about growth priorities, even though he will have smart things to say. So there is a, an important function at the top of the company, part, part of whose responsibility, if you are a, a decision maker at that level, is conveying to the other people at that level, the right amount of context so that they can go and do their jobs. And I'm trying to kind of find the right way to describe what that, what the content of that material is. It's really hard to do, but um, certainly there are decisions that impact other people who, who don't need to be in the actual decision-making conversation, but should very quickly have that context, um, mostly just because it's efficient, but also because it's trust building. Well, let me, let me pressure test the specific example. So let's say I'm bringing together a conversation with Tom and Moz to talk about how to improve cross-functional coordination between growth and product. And the effect of this is we're going to be changing our spec writing process that directly affects everyone within product. <laughs> Should we add Kozuma and David to this conversation synchronously? No, but we should make sure that Maz is there so that he can communicate that to them. But Kozuma and David have way more context than even Maz does on the actual process of writing specs. So why, why shouldn't they be in there? Well, if, if Maz doesn't have the necessary insight, then he's probably not the right person to be making the decision. Well, sure he is. It's his function. And figuring out how to coordinate between these two functions is his call. Mm -hmm. But it's important, I think we could agree that he have the right context about what the impact of that call is. So he may want to have Cosmo or David get him up to speed before that decision-making process or after and say, hey, we got to circle back. I don't, I don't know enough or phone a friend and pull them in real time. But that's, yeah, that's his decision. I, I don't want to like dictate how that happens, but definitely I don't think it's the right 
the right approach here is probably not to force Moz to make a call that he doesn't have enough information to make. Sure. I mean, the way that I would answer the question is it's perfectly reasonable for him to hear what Tom has to say, for Tom to hear what Moz has to say. They bring that information to their teams. They figure it out separately. And then maybe they have another meeting where they've built up enough context and they follow up on this. Yeah, I think I failure mode is Kozuma and David have to be in this conversation when very few people have any context about what the purpose of the meeting even is. I could do that same exercise for another 10 people at the company. And we could easily justify having this be a 15-person meeting. And then we're just spending all of our time going over table stakes, context collection, and we make no progress. Agreement on this topic. I, I don't think that, uh, <laughs> I don't think it's useful to have all those people privy to that one. And, and yet there are topics at the company, which I trust people to, you know, function leads to determine what's important to catch other people up on. It, this is a, this is like a bit of a calibration process. Like we've had a couple examples or iterations of the lead sync where it hasn't been useful. People are like defaulting to status updates, but we also had some really valuable discussion in there. And I think the way the meeting is going to trend is that people will get more comfortable working together with each other and get more effective at selecting the right topics to raise, whether that's, hey, I think we need to make a decision on this sometime soon, just FYI, or this decision was made, it's going to have serious impacts for these two people. I recommend you watch the video and catch up, just like surfacing that. Or Sam, this is an escalation between Ben and Tom got to make the call today, right now. Like, what do you think? And then that, that process occurs. Um, I think that could be done effectively. Those, those three types of topic. And again, there's a lot of decisions happening inside the company, which we need to stay very lean on. So that, that example of Moz and, and Tom impacting spec writing, like, yeah, I totally trust them to, to make that decision based on collecting the right amount of information. And I don't think it's going to impact that many people outside their groups. So that's like sort of a day-to-day -day operational thing versus high-level strategic impact. So the way I would see this happening is that in a lead sync meeting, there's a heads up. Like, hey, we're, we're evaluating this. And then there is a group of people who are responsible for getting the right information. That's probably Lauren and Zach in this example. Maybe Casey. They then come up with a recommendation. And then in that meeting, potentially like the lead sync, another, another go around, they communicate that and say, like, based on the information and we circulated the memo in the loom, but we got to make a decision on this. This is going to have a $10 million impact over the next four months. It's going to expose us to X regulatory issues. Zach's in the meeting because he can back that up in real time if necessary. Sam, what are we going to do here? And I'm there and the other, you know, function owners are there and a decision gets made. And then we immediately know. Most of the fact-finding is done by people who are really the DRI, but I don't think the DRI in this case can be anyone other than the CEO. And, and so it's like, yeah, Lauren could be responsible for collecting all the project information and Zach could be responsible for all the regulatory information. But at the end of the day, this is going to change the business permanently. And to just kind of make that call happen um, and then back communicate or back propagate the information to the, to the rest of the team I don't know that I trust a situation like that as much because I know that people like Moz are going to have really smart things to say in that moment. And I know that people like Tom are going to be able to raise their hand and say, you know, this is how our marketing rules 
are going to change. And may, you know, maybe that process happens during the project. I'm, I'm kind of raising an example that I have not fully thought through, but I know that there are, there are examples like this where we're kicking around big ideas that are going to impact the entire organization. And I don't see why we would want to prevent like, you know, that, that layer of the, of the pyramid from being able to communicate with each other synchronously. And, and maybe there's like no reason for that group to communicate about anything other than personal matters to, to build trust. Alignment is really important. I think it's more a matter of, I, I only quibble with the necessity of synchronicity on so many of these things. So a good example of this, we can actually take the clinical, the clinical strategy concept because this started with Lauren and I having a conversation and me asking her to investigate this. The decision was made that we're going to investigate it. Pressure testing this or playing some hypotheticals. I can easily foresee a situation where you or somebody else on the team says like, how, I didn't know we were investigating this. How did this start happening? And the answer is, it's not happening. We're just looking into it. And then Lauren did her research. She talked to people that she thought were relevant. She got as much information as she could to just get like table stakes context setting for herself and for other people, for me, for whoever else wants to read it. And then she presented it to the group to get some alignment. But we now have context, a, a failure mode, which we have actually had happen internally for different projects is step one, get everyone who might have anything to contribute on a call and collect everyone's information and spend spend the majority of time just consolidating this information and creating the group average of what everyone thinks as the answer. And it takes way longer. You end up repeating yourself on almost every one of these conversations because each person hasn't read a centralized memo that contains all the information and ends up going in circles. And it's been, I can't think of an example where we have had a positive outcome uh, come from the collaborative first approach. I think there's a, in, in design, they call this a, the double diamond approach, which is you start with something specific, you expand it out, and you try to get more specific. And in my mind, it's like somebody has to be the owner who has to develop a context. They are ultimately the decision maker. They need to spend in hero mode, getting as much context as they can, reaching out to growth to see what their opinion is, reaching out to product, see what their opinion is, consolidate all of that, come up with form an actual opinion based on knowledge that they've gathered, present that to a group, get alignment, make a decision. And I think starting from collaboration, it almost always has led to failure of a project. I don't know if that's been your experience, but that's how I've seen it here at least. So I'm now confused because I don't think I've ever suggested that we should start from collaboration. I, I think I am in, I think I'm in alignment with what you're saying here, which is that the objective here, the double diamond approach is you expand an individual or someone tasked with the process expands the scope of context that they have. They then converge with others, collect alignment, and then, you know, the expansion for execution process starts. That's really what I would say is, is the right approach here. It's that the context is developed and you are at a decision point or you are at a you know, the decision's already been made and you need to align the, the group. And that's the context transfer or the, there, there may occasionally be derailing examples where somebody says, this hasn't been considered and that's part of the alignment process, right? But, but ultimately the objective here is, is to keep people aligned. Well, 
if all of this is ultimately coming down to whether we call these things proposed decisions or actual decisions, like UK example is Tom, Karen, and I met. And the conclusion was, we're going to reprioritize. And if we call that a tentative decision pending Karen's communication to the rest of the team, and if that would solve all of these problems, then maybe that's what we need to do is when we have these meetings, we call them tentative meetings or tentative conclusions until we have, until the team has context and we get alignment on these things. Probably part of the reason why it wasn't super high priority is that it wasn't taking up a lot of team time mm-hmm. and that Karen had other really high priority things that she was doing. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. It seems like my perception of the way that you were describing it before, it's like we need more people synchronously on meetings earlier on in the process just in case they have something to add and for me it makes the meetings less useful yeah i think the earlier on in the process part is where i do not hold that that opinion so um where in the process is it kind of depends on how much impact someone's going to have but yeah optimally this is like again decisions escalated decisions or major be- like mental backburner items that that people need to align on and, and understand in order to have confidence in each other and that's not a you know that that last category is more of the future strategy stuff but the decisions and the and the escalated decisions which basically are hey this decision was made or this decision still needs to be made we we had a conversation we can't come to an agreement this needs to be sort of tie broken or or you do we're all agreed we think this is the right decision Mm-hmm. And like, I'll, I'm going to be rude and quote you back to yourself and then figure out where our misalignment is in our vocabulary. Without real-time context, trust erodes quickly. If you don't know how the decisions were made, trust erodes. If, you, if you're not in the meeting in real time as the decisions are being made, before the decision is made, if you don't know how, how implies, I would say, or even explicitly states, how means before the decision was made, which means you have to be involved early in the process, pre-decision. You know, and I, I think I've reiterated multiple times is that these are there is a subset of what's happening in the company that matters in this context. So I'm not talking about all decisions. I'm not talking about every project. There, I trust, and I think I've said this as well, I trust the leads of the company to know which decisions are most impactful to other people and thus surface those so that the context can be transferred. And that's really all I've been talking about in this whole conversation is that there is a set of decisions that are being made that it is helpful to be privy to if you are a function level lead or owner. And so, and I actually do still maintain that seeing that process occur is helpful. Um, Again, like that example of clinical product strategy, this doesn't mean before context has been developed, this doesn't mean before the initial you know, conversation and fact-finding processes happened. It's here are the facts. The facts were developed. The decision wasn't made. I don't think Lauren, she surfaced those facts and people had some time to kind of chew on them and discuss them. And a sort of next step was pulled out of that. And I think an alternative is one where Lauren makes a decision and tells people, or she talks to you and tells people like, we're going to MVP this. And then Maz says, hey, I actually think that we could modify that pretty dramatically and like kind of mesh it with the product strategy. Why don't we like reconsider this? I think those are two ways we could go about that process. And this is only, again, a certain type of decision context has already been developed. 
But the fact that people were there to observe and kind of contribute to the process of making a next steps decision felt right. So there's a lot of nuance to like where to draw the line on which decisions people like at the leads level need, need insight into, but I certainly don't mean all of them. I think the principle from, from my perspective is, is just the minimum number of people necessary to make a decision. Let's say we don't have confidence in the answer. And so soliciting more opinions is the right approach. I think in the, in the other example that we have, another one of Lauren's memos around clinical, the conclusion was pretty clear. And so the, the decision was made before it was brought to the group, which was no. She, she sent me the memo and I said, great, this is helpful. We're just, we're just not going to do it and we'll look for something else. And in theory, more people could have been involved in that conversation early, later. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a good example in that I think there was such clarity from the deliverable that, that I, I don't think we had any momentum in the direction of executing on that. And like, it wasn't really a change of strategy. It was sort of like a proving a negative, like we're not, we're not going to do the thing we're not doing. So maybe that's why it was uh, not much of a thing, but yeah, I consider that a success here where like the information was collected people got to see the sort of decision being made. And I don't think that was a sort of waste of alignment um, or waste of airtime for, for the people that were on the call. But I'm curious how you feel about it. Yeah, I don't think it was a waste. I think that one felt like we had a pretty clear path forward. I would also say it was not a foregone conclusion that the answer was no. I actually assumed the answer was yes, based on some of the preliminary research that she had done. Um, and it would have been a significant reallocation of resources, but really significant revenue potential as well. So it just turned out that the answer was a pretty strong no. And one could argue that it was such a potentially substantially large reallocation of resources that we should have considered it more seriously because mm -hmm. of the revenue potential and that quickly coming to a decision with a much smaller group of people and saying the answer is no was just as poor a use of our collaborative time as consulting or concluding the answer is yes to something. So like it, it was not a minor decision. We just had more early clarity with a smaller group of decision makers. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that is a good success example where there wasn't an escalation needed necessarily. I mean, the, the call was pretty clear. Again, I, I don't think we had built momentum in that direction. An example where we, we could see an issue, right, is where you have like the product strategy and those discussions happen separately. And let's say that there is a decision, like chronological context of those two things are happening in parallel. And if those like don't happen in some, in some way collaboratively, or at least with visibility to each other, that can be a very trust eroding process where it's like two products are being sort of green, green lit simultaneously. And again, we, you know, we want people to assume best intent to, to work together and to advocate for the company. But I believe that we approached them properly in both examples where we didn't really need to discuss much more about the clinical product strategy. And I wouldn't doubt that at some point in the, in the company's future, we will revisit that and say, like, does this still hold? Is this still the right decision for us? That's probably years in the future. But with product strategy, because there's more optimism about the, the potential here, there's more to be done. And also it's important for everyone to stay aligned through that process. Yeah. 
I guess using both of those as case studies, those were both largely written by one person in a very non-collaborative way. And the deliverable was a memo. And I feel like we started this conversation talking about how memos don't get alignment and don't lead to these sorts of decisions. So we definitely have examples on both sides there. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) That's what I would say on that. But this is why it's important for people who are in charge of strategic decisions to be able to know like what the impacts are beyond themselves and be able to recognize when when to escalate for alignment or for decision making and when not to. There's an art to this and people who are good at it will be good at it. And people who aren't good at it will either like totally discount the usefulness of this and run into a lot of trust issues or they'll overdo it and people will be very aggravated by the fact that they're constantly doing status updates that are totally not useful. My position on this is basically just that there's an inherent quality here where you can make good judgment calls on what needs to be collaboratively available um, discussed in that setting. But we also need to have the mechanism for that to occur. If we were to lean really aggressively into saying decisions are made in a group of three or, or fewer, and if you need that information, you have to sort of find the loom recording and then take it up in person. And we don't have like a, any concept of a leadership or leads. Again, I hate using the term leadership, but... <laughs> Meeting format. A, that was actually the whole point of this conversation that we got <laughs> sidetracked. Yeah, yeah. If you don't have that mechanism, then then that alignment can't happen. We have had those periods of time at the company, and we saw a lot more trust issues arise in those time frames than when we allowed that mechanism to happen. <laughs>